As you start to reach more people, things start to feel more complex. There's more to do and more to keep track of, and it starts to actually take time away from creating content. I felt this struggle personally. The more creator science grew, the more it felt like I was dropping the ball. So I did something about it. I built a set of rock solid systems, all in Notion to support the business as we grew. And it worked like a charm. I've now taken my personal Notion setup and productized it. It's called Creator HQ, and it's the complete operating system that you need for your creator business. I built Creator HQ to be an all-in-one workspace designed to save you more time, create more content, and drive more revenue. By leveraging Creator HQ, we are publishing more than we ever have, and we're nearing $1 million in annual revenue because of it. It brings all of your data and processes into one place with custom-built dashboards to reduce friction in managing tasks, creating content, and collaborating with your team. I've seriously spent more than three years building this, and now you can have the same systems that I use right out of the box. In the lab, one of our members just posted, I have spent the last few weeks diving into Creator HQ, learning how it works, and making it my own. This is the first time in a while that I felt this organized and filled with hope that I can find a workflow that will work for me with my whole business. This is gold. I will definitely be giving a testimonial for this badass product. If you're new to Notion, don't worry. I've included a ton of specific tutorials to help you learn how to use Notion generally and Creator HQ specifically. I've never seen another Notion product integrate tutorials like we have here. More than 300 other creators are already using Creator HQ, and I am not exaggerating when I say I would be lost without this system. Creator HQ is what keeps the trains running over here. As a podcast listener, I'm giving you my best price. You can get 10% off using the promo code podcast at checkout. Just head to creatorhq.co to watch the video and learn more. That's creatorhq.co and use promo code podcast to save 10%. I get why people think networking is awkward because we make it awkward by only reaching out when we actually need something from that person. And then before, and usually after that, they're just dead to us, right? That's not a good way to go about this. Welcome to Creative Elements, a show where we talk to your favorite creators and learn what it takes to make a living from your art and creativity. I'm your host, Jay Klaus. Let's start the show. Hello, welcome back to another episode of Creative Elements. When I was in college, I started in the journalism program. But after about a year and a half, I switched into the business school and felt like I was in way over my head. I was trying to learn and absorb everything I possibly could about business. And one day in my sophomore year, we had an entrepreneur come in as a guest speaker. This guy was super impressive to me. He had a business making money off of billboards, and he talked about how he started out by paying farmers to build billboards on their land and how he would use that cash to buy self-storage facilities and how he used that cash to do other cool things like real estate. I mean, that is like the most businessy business I've ever heard. But what really stood out to me about his talk was that he focused on relationships. He told us that the best book he'd ever read was How to Win Friends and Influence People by Dale Carnegie. And I immediately bought the book and read it cover to cover. It's still on the bookshelf behind me as I'm saying this. It's a really great book. It's still one of my favorites. And there's nothing incredibly surprising in that book, but it really does help you to understand how people work and how you can start to form real relationships with them. Well, enter today's guest, Jordan Harbinger. Jordan is the host of The Jordan Harbinger Show, which is one of the biggest podcasts on the planet. 
Welcome to the show, I'm Jordan Harbinger. On the Jordan Harbinger Show, we decode the stories, secrets, and skills of the world's most fascinating people. We have in-depth conversations with people at the top of their game. Astronauts, entrepreneurs, spies, psychologists, even the occasional four-star general, Russian spy, or arms dealer. Each episode turns our guests' wisdom into practical advice that you can use to build a deeper understanding of how the world works and become a better critical thinker. As we'll hear in the interview, Jordan started out as a Wall Street lawyer, but thanks to a guy named Dave, the youngest partner at the firm, Jordan realized that his best path to success was through sales. And through studying sales, Jordan realized that the real secret to getting good at sales was actually through building relationships. Then light bulbs really began to go off for Jordan, because as a single guy in his mid-20s, he realized that what he was learning about selling worked in other aspects of his life too. And then I would take those techniques and apply them to dating, and I went, oh my goodness, this is the magic sauce. And I thought if the sales techniques apply to dating, I wonder if the dating techniques apply to sales. And at that time, there was this little burgeoning community of guys online that were talking about this before it became the gross kind of pickup artisty stuff that we now know. It wasn't long until Jordan left the law to teach what he was learning about sales, relationships, and dating through the art of charm. You know, I thought this is going to be where I learned how to network and generate business for my law firm, dot, 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 became a partner. As you know, I ended up leaving the law and teaching just the stuff I was learning. And that turned out, that itself turned out to be a multi-million dollar business. After more than a decade of teaching these techniques and building a strong following, Jordan left the Art of Charm in 2018. And it was the relationships he'd built with his audience that helped him to launch the Jordan Harbinger Show in 2018 and find a lot of immediate success. It was awarded Best of Apple Podcasts in 2018, and as of the middle of 2020, the Jordan Harbinger Show was generating more than 6 million downloads per month. And appropriately, I was actually introduced to Jordan through our guest from episode 11, Vanessa Van Edwards. This is one of my favorite episodes so far. We talk about building strong relationships, effective sales strategies that people actually appreciate, being a great podcast host, and all of this comes down to relationships. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this episode as you listen. You can find me on Twitter or Instagram at jklaus. I'd love to know that you're listening. And if you're not already in our listeners community on Facebook, I'd love for you to join that too. But now let's talk to Jordan. I went to law school for one of the reasons that I think many people go to any graduate school, but especially law school, which was that I had nothing else to do. And I figured that I was not going to be able to get a good job with an undergrad degree. And I wasn't wrong. I mean, nobody told us how to get jobs. I found myself unemployed over the summer along with literally everyone else. And I went into Best Buy and I was like, hey, I can build computers. I can fix computers. I can take network cards in and out. I can install software, get rid of viruses. And they were like, cool, you're going to be selling CDs with Tom. He's 17. He's going to be your (laughs) mentor. And I was like, I have $65,000 or 165,000, I can't remember now, you know, dollars of debt. I'm not going to work with Tom, who's a freshman in high school or sophomore. He's my friend's little brother. I have a four-year degree. It's not just ego. I'm broke. I'm negative. In fact, Tom has more money than me because I have negative, you know, whatever money at this point. And they're like, yeah, you can't just start off in the computer and customer service section. That's a manager position. And I just thought, I am screwed. This is going to not going to be, end well for me. They never told us how to get jobs when I was in college. What do we do now? And the answer was, uh, I don't know. Good luck out there, kids. Don't forget your don't forget your first loan payment. It's due in a month. Totally. So you went through with law school. You eventually end up with a a Wall Street law job, 
Right. And you meet this guy named Dave. Can you tell me a little bit about Dave? Right. So Dave was in the, he was a partner in the firm and he was probably, I don't know, one of the youngest partners in the firm. I, I, I don't want to venture a guess because back then everyone seemed kind of old, a lot older when I was 27 and he was probably honestly like 40. And he was never there in the office. And I thought this is so weird because the other partners that are in the office are there on, I've gone in on Saturday. I've gone in on Sunday. They're always there. Dave's not even there on a Tuesday at noon. What's, what's up? And one day I decided I was going to ask him about this because I thought, okay, everyone here is really smart. Everyone works really hard. Maybe they'll figure, like I felt I had some imposter syndrome. You know, I thought they're going to fire me if they find out that I'm a dumbass, right? So I got to conceal that fact. And the way to conceal that fact is to be in the office as little as possible and just work remotely, which some people did, you know, like we had pregnant women and stuff that were working from home, people that worked from home for other reasons. And I, I figured Dave wasn't in the office because he was working from home. And I thought, okay, I got to get the skinny on how to do that. So I asked him why he was never in the office, but he was also one of the youngest partners. You know, what, what are you doing from home that is making you look so good to the firm that they made you a partner? And he said, I don't really work from home that often. And I said, okay, but you're not in the office. Like where do you just, you're just not working. And he's like, well, I'm working, but I'm bringing in business for the firm. You know, I bring in the deals. And I said, okay, well, how do you make your billable hourly bonus if you're just bringing in deals? And he goes, I don't worry about it because I get 5% or whatever of each deal. And if the deal is a million dollars and my billable hourly bonus for the whole year is X dollars, it's just worth it for me to keep bringing in deals. And I said, why doesn't everyone do that then? if they're going to make more, more money. And he goes, well, not everyone can. And so I thought like, okay, now you're speaking my language. What do I do? And he goes, just be cool, man. And I was like, damn it. We're back at square one. Because if I could just be cool, do you think my life would have turned out this way? <laughs> like, would I be sitting here right now? What do you mean? Just be cool for crying out loud. And he's like, well, you got to know your other law school buddies. You know, some of them are investment bankers. Keep an eye on those folks, generate relationships with them, cultivate relationships. Those are going to be our clients in the future. And I just thought like, this is so vague and cryptic. And this is a guy who's naturally good at this. I'm not going to be able to emulate this any more than I'm going to be able to play basketball by watching Michael Jordan do it. You know, it's just not going to happen. So I started to take classes about networking from the YMCA and Dale Carnegie and things like that. And, and it was an okay start, but it was kind of like, I'd walk in and they'd go, look them in the eye and have a firm handshake. And it, 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 okay, fine. I got it. But if I'm not getting a million dollar Goldman Sachs contract for my law firm, is it because of the eye contact or the firm handshake? Or is there something else going on that I'm just not going to learn from a guy wearing a sweater vest teaching on Tuesday nights at the Learning Annex? And how do you have that conversation? How do you even get in front of the guy to have the firm handshake and look right. in the eye? Right. And, and that, that kind of thing was just, to, I remember asking these questions in these, these courses, right? And, and they just had no idea. It was like, oh, you know, you ask your management and you work your way up the corporate ladder like anyone else. And I was like, no, you don't get it. That's what everyone else is doing. And also, what do you know? You're teaching on Tuesday nights at the Learning Annex, man. You don't have a job like this. You don't have any corporate experience. You know, you're, you're like a life coach trainer, something, something, right? A freelancer. You, you've never been in these shoes. And it's not that the classes weren't useful. It's just that they were geared towards people. The other people in those classes were there because they would say things like, my manager said I'm never going to get promoted unless I can run a meeting and I'm scared to talk to people in front of the room. And I said, okay, so you're afraid of public speaking? Yeah. And it was like they couldn't get up and run a meeting with five people or eight people in a room because they were nervous. And I thought, this is not the problem that I'm having. 
I'm having a very discreet set of problems that none of these people are really even in the, I'm not even in the room with other people that have the same problems, let alone the people that have the solutions. So I, I knew it was a dead end and I had to start studying this on my own. And how did you direct yourself to find the answers for your discrete problem that you've identified as being different than this? So I started to read online and I started to find people that said things like, yeah, you know, the best sales techniques I've gotten are dating techniques. And I thought like, oh, that's interesting. I'm 27, 26, whatever. I'm interested in dating. I think I might have even been 25. I'm interested in dating. Let's read about these dating techniques to hell with the networking stuff. Let me take a detour into this. So I started learning those and I went, these really are good for networking, right? It's like charisma and showing, making people feel valued and all this stuff. And then I would take these online, these really good online sales classes and offline, and they would have the same thing, like make them feel valued, do this, do that. And I thought, okay, this isn't networking. This is about sales. I'm actually in a sales position and the best salespeople aren't just trying to persuade you to buy something, which is what sales looks like to non-salesmen. They're actually cultivating relationships. So what I should be doing is not learning networking from people who teach quote unquote networking. I should be learning networking from people who teach sales and not high pressure sales, but good long-term sales cycle salespeople. That's who I need to be learning from. And I started to apply sales techniques to dating and dating techniques to sales. And I went like, I, I remember waking up one day and being like, this is life-changing material. And I remember looking at my computer in my notes, like I had Evernote or something, some early version of whatever notes program. And I remember going, this is the day that I'm going to look back on in 10 years and be like, this is the day my life changed. And it turned out to be right. Rarely does that moment ever happen, right? It's rarely do you have that. And then it turns out to be right. That was something where I went, this is such a game changer. And it was such an absolute game changer that it did change my entire life more so than I thought. Can you talk about some of these techniques and get just give some examples of like, well, what does a dating technique applied to sales look like or vice versa? Right. So sales training, one of the techniques was something like, all right, whenever you go into the room, you know, you want to make sure that you're positive, open, confident, friendly, make everyone smile, make people feel good about being around you, even the people that you're not selling to, because those relationships and the, the sort of energy and vibe that those people reflect to you is going to reflect well to the person who's a decision maker in the organization. So if you're walking into the office, the reception, get the receptionist smiling, make sure the person who escorts you, who's the assistant to that person is happy with you and they all like you. And then, you know, that way, when the person is making the decision, there's almost this not quite metaphysical, but like a, a sort of vibe, like, man, whenever Jordan comes in here, everyone just loves that guy. That's a vendor we want to be working with. Let's hire them. All other things being equal rather than the guy who's a hundred dollars cheaper, but everyone's like, ugh, that so-and-so is here again, you know? And it, that you want that to reflect well on you. And I went, all right, what happens if I walk into the bar and the doorman likes me and then the bartender yells at me from behind the bar and the regulars want me to come and sit down and have a drink with them? How's that going to look? And again, I'm 25, so this is like my life at that point in time. Turns out that's a really good way to earn social status. And it turns out that the sales class wasn't just teaching me how to be charismatic and outgoing. It was teaching me how to raise my social status because people seek to be around and involved with those who have high status. That's why that sales technique works, right? That's why having a good personal brand is good for sales and closing because 
it raises your status. So I thought, okay, this dating stuff, social status is great for dating and it's great for sales. It's not just like high pressure sales is bad for selling things other than used cars. Maybe high pressure dating tactics are really gross and everyone can feel it and see it right away. It's just that then when it comes to sales, we somehow lose the idea that we have to be charismatic, open, positive, confident, friendly, et cetera, and vulnerable. And I thought like, okay, if I can figure out how all of this crossover works, I'm going to be unstoppable both in, in terms of generating business for my firm, but probably won't hurt me in the dating world either. And again, I'm 25, 26, 27. That's what was my focus. Don't get fired and probably learn how to make some new friends and possibly date some attractive women. Like that was my entire tiny little world in my late twenties in New York. I love this topic because behind every company, every organization, every decision is a human person. Mm -hmm. And you just got to be a human person that that human person wants to associate with, talk to work with. Like ultimately when people are making hiring decisions or anything else, it's like, I know I'm signing up to work with this person. Do I want to do that? After a quick break, Jordan and I dive deep into sales strategies that work and that people actually appreciate right after this. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Last year, my wife and I started talking about her joining the business full time. This is a huge decision, not just for the business, but for our marriage. My wife, being the very smart and thoughtful woman that she is, suggested that we proactively sign up for therapy as a couple to help us communicate better before we started working together. It really helped us have better language to describe how we're feeling and listen to one another, which generally lowers the intensity of any conversation. Now, I had never been in therapy before, but here's something that I didn't expect. It didn't just help our dialogue, but it helped my inner monologue too. The way I understand my own experience has changed based on the tools that I got from therapy. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, so it's convenient, it fits your schedule, and you can be in the comfort of your own home. Just fill out a short questionnaire and you'll get matched with a licensed therapist. They even make it easy to switch therapists if it doesn't feel like a fit. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com creator today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash creator. This episode is sponsored by Podcast Movement. For the past decade, Podcast Movement has organized the world's largest gathering of podcasters, featuring thousands of attendees, hundreds of breakout sessions, panels, and workshops, plus the largest trade show in podcasting. Podcast Movement helps podcasters of all experience levels create, grow, and profit from their show. It's suitable for beginners, but you'll also have the opportunity to meet some of the biggest names in the industry. I've been to several Podcast Movement events, and not only is the programming incredible, but the culture and vibe are incredible too. It attracts thoughtful, empathetic, and collaborative people, which makes sense when you think about the medium of podcasting. Podcast Movement hosts two events per year. The first just wrapped up, but their flagship conference is happening August 19th through the 22nd in Washington, D.C. Attendees have the freedom to choose their own adventure across several different stages throughout the four-day event, not to mention dozens of amazing networking events, parties, and the expo hall floor. Tracks include podcast creation, video and live streaming, industry professional, plus several stages of curated programming from some of the top companies in podcasting. It's truly a unique event, and if you are a podcaster, I cannot recommend it enough. Right now, tickets are available at super duper early bird pricing. And as a Creator Science listener, you can save $50 on top of that 
by visiting podcastmovement.com slash science. That's podcastmovement.com slash science. Welcome back to my conversation with Jordan Harbinger. Jordan was just getting into what he learned about truly effective sales techniques, and I could hear you starting to put some walls up. So here's the thing. Sales is not inherently evil. This is a topic I really, really love talking about because for some reason, a lot of us are raised with a belief that sales is bad and we want to reject learning how to get good at selling. But when you go into a Starbucks and you order a coffee, you don't feel sold to, right? You just know that you want the coffee and you'll happily pay for that coffee. That's what effective sales is like. And so I asked Jordan why so many of us grow up with such an inherent bias against sales. The reason I think, and I've thought about this quite a bit, I'm sure there's more to it than just this, but one of the main reasons I've noticed is that good sales is invisible, right? You walk into the stereo store and the sales guy walks up to you and says, hey, what are you looking for? Can I help you? And you go, ah, no, just looking. This is a little bit pricey. And he goes, I know, right? It's It really is. But I got to tell you, you don't have to buy the super expensive stuff over here. I wouldn't even recommend all that. That's kind of like, you know, you get our audio files that want that. What you should do, just get a pair of good headphones at some point, and I'm happy, you know, you can try these. That will change the way you listen to music forever. And then, you know, but I got to warn you, once you get bitten by the bug, you're going to want more. And you go, okay. And he goes, can I, here, sit down over here. You got to listen to this. What kind of music you like? All right, cool. Here, here, look, there's this. Check these headphones out. They're entry level. Just tell me what you think. And you listen and you go, all right, wow, wow, this really does sound good. I didn't even know that Metallica had violins in it or whatever you're listening to, right? Like, I didn't know Skrillex could be so deep, man. So you listen to that and you go, all right. And you think about it and you, th- you go back to your regular headphones at the gym and you go, man, those are really good, huh? And then you get home and you put on Spotify and you go, it just doesn't sound as good. And then over Christmas, you know, you get all your money from your grandma, whatever, and you walk right back into that store and you go, hey, man, I think I do want those headphones. And he goes, great, we're having a sale. Now's a great time for you to get these. And I... I love these. You're going to love them. If you don't bring them back, I will, you know, but I've never given a refund on these because I don't need to. And you go, okay, fine. That's a really good sales guy. You don't think, shoot, man, I just got sold a pair of really expensive headphones. That, that son of a gun, right? You're, you're happy with what you have and you walk back in there for the next five years. And that guy is your homie giving you the in-store discount on all your stereo equipment, right? Bad sales is the stuff we notice right away. You walk, go and walk in the car lot and you go, all right, I really just need something. My car broke. I'm 29. I don't drive much, but I still need something to get back to my parents' house. I really just want a basic model. In fact, I, I, I'm not even going to get a new one. I'm going to get a used one. And they go, oh, okay, well, one time only offer this, that, and the other thing. And you end up getting pressured into something. You regret the purchase or you're like, ah, fine, but you're rationalizing it. You kind of don't like the guy. You never want to see the salesman again. He was supposed to throw in floor mats and didn't. And you find out it wasn't in writing the contract. So now they're not going to honor it. And you go, these sales guys are just gross, right? You don't think about the sales that made you feel good, that were highly effective and that kept you coming back because they developed a relationship with you. You only think about the sales that made you feel gross and disgusting and victimized. And you go, I never want to be that person. I'm never going to do that. So then when somebody says, hey, for your business, You really need to learn how to sell. People go, hell no, I'm not learning how to sell. I've been sold a few times and it made me feel gross and I hate sales guys. And then you go right back to that stereo store and you buy something else and you don't think, I'm dealing with a salesperson right now. You just think, no, well, I mean, Tom, he's cool. He's not like a regular sales guy. You're only thinking of the people that made you feel like crap. 
That's super interesting because I agree, like growing up when you hear sales, because kids don't think about or really talk about sales or experience Mm -hmm. sales. But what you do hear are the adults around you who are speaking with regret about something they were sold or something they bought that they regret. Very, I don't know if I can pinpoint very many times when somebody is like, I was sold on this and I love it because they don't talk about it as being sold. But to your point, they talk about it as just a, a positive experience. So when you hear the word sales, you begin to equate it with a negative experience, I think. Exactly. And a really good salesperson will never have to resort to quote unquote sales techniques that are so transparent and obvious. So if you buy something from me, let's say I'm selling this environmentally friendly iPhone case, right? I get, I get you one of these things, right? You buy it from me and you don't go, yeah, Jordan, he really told me all the benefits of having an environmentally friendly case as opposed to one that was plastic that pollutes a lot. So I weighed the pros and cons and bought it. You go, you say nothing about me. Or you say, my friend Jordan told me that iPhone cases are really a major component of landfills. Like all of these cases we put on on our electronics are horrible for the environment. You never think about it. This one, you can throw it in the ocean and the dang thing will biodegrade in 90 days. In fact, fish can eat it and it has nutrients in it. Isn't that incredible? And people go, wow, where do I get one of those? What's it called? Because it's not only invisible, but it's referred to you in a way that makes you feel like it's one friend telling you something as opposed to another. Meanwhile, my quote unquote sales technique is get this in front of you and make you feel good about it. But since it's a good product, which is a good component of a a good salesman, only selling things they believe in, I don't have to do gross things to get you to wrap your mind around the the costs, the benefits, and do that calculation in your head. So nobody feels sold, to your point, nobody feels sold when they buy something and they don't have to constantly rationalize it. Or if the rationalizations make perfect sense, like, yeah, it was 10 bucks more than a regular case, but I'm not an a-hole. I'm not, cause I'm not contributing to ocean blight and, you know, choking out sea turtles with my iPhone case. So I'm part of this cool club where I paid extra for my Tesla or extra for my iPhone case because I believe in something. Sales that is highly visible is usually the kind of sales that is so visible because of the techniques that are being used in the negative way that it's making us feel. Usually bad sales that is highly visible is is really, really uh, high pressure. And not only is it high pressure, but we wanna get away from it. And that's why we close. That's why we end up buying that used car because we just wanna get out of there and we've kind of had enough. And we feel like if we, that guy will just make, it'll make it stop if I sign on the dotted line. And besides I need a car anyway. That's when you drive off the lot going, I'm an idiot. And also interesting in that story, you just shared that example of the phone case, the way that this person in your story is saying, look at this phone case that I got that's biodegradable. They are showing to their friends almost to their own status thing. Mm -hmm. Like that sale is allowing them to show their own status uplift and create status in the eyes that people are talking to. I think back to one of my favorite episodes of the show so far, which was my conversation with James Clear in episode two. James mentioned offhand that often the mark of an expert is knowing what to focus on and what to ignore. So as someone who has spent so much time studying relationships, I asked Jordan to talk about his most fundamental principles of building relationships. The first principle that I always teach is dig the well before you're thirsty. And I didn't make this up. I think it's from like a, it's probably from a sales book from the nineties, right? And it's about creating relationships before you need them. And it's, both the most important concept in relationship building and also one of the most ignored. Because whenever I teach this, people will go, oh, that's good. Dig the well before you're thirsty. Yeah, build relationships before you need them. And then I'll follow up with the 
people I spoke to, you know, at Google or something half a year later and I'll go, how's this going for you? And they'll go, oh, well, you know, I, I've got to work on this and I've got to wrap that up and I've got to do this and da, da, da. And then I'll start on that. And I go, okay, but you know that the concept is build relationships before you need them, right? Dig the well before you're thirsty, not when you're good and ready and when you think you might actually need them. Like you're literally doing the opposite of this. And that's unfortunate because we all know people that call us out of the blue. We haven't heard from them in two years, five years, eight years. And we're sort of suspicious, right? We're thinking like, haven't heard from Jay in a while. It's been, I don't know, 10 years. Why is he calling me now? Is it Herbalife or is it Scientology? What do you think? Coin flip, right? Which one of these, <laughs> which one of these is it? But if you call me and you say, hey, Jordan, I've done a really bad job of keeping in touch over the years and I kind of wanted to change that. So I'm reaching out, no real agenda and no rush getting back to me. Then when I do get back to you and I go, hmm, I bet it's something and it's some multi-level marketing scheme. And then it's not that. And I go, oh, I guess he just really did want to keep in touch, but I'm a little suspicious. And then six months later, it comes up again. And I talk to you and I'm a little suspicious, but I'm a little less suspicious because you didn't ask me for anything. And then a year goes by and we're, you know, we talk every six months, maybe just via text a little bit here and there. And then in two years, you're like, hey, I'm, I've got this book launch that I'm doing. And I go, oh, okay. Yeah, sure. I'll help you with that. I don't go, I knew it. You've been buttering me up for 24 months to try and get me. No, that's an, that's an insane thought. But what happens when most people do this is they go, all right, I got a book launch man, I haven't talked with a lot of these people in a long time. All right, here's my plan. I'm going to awkwardly reach out, pretend that I don't want anything, ask about their kid, because I saw you had a kid on social media. Then like four days later, I'm going to come back and go, gee, I have a book launch and you'd be perfect for it. I didn't even think about this before. And now it's awkward for you. And then for me, I just go, oh, okay, I knew you didn't really want to keep in touch with me. You just wanted something. And so you had to butter me up a few days beforehand because you knew that reaching out out of nowhere was going to be really awkward. So you did the second most awkward thing, which is pretend to be interested in me. So you have to build relationships before you need them. You can't actually make up for lost time when it comes to relationships and networking. And yet most people do that because it's out of sight, out of mind. It doesn't mean they're selfish. It just means that it's, it's out of sight, out of mind you typically don't think about other people until you do need something. So I get why people think networking is awkward because we make it awkward by only reaching out when we actually need something from that person. And then before, and usually after that, they're just dead to us, right? That's not a good way to go about this. Something I love about the approach you just talked about, you frame that initial message as like, hey, I've done a bad job of keeping in touch. I'd really love to keep in touch, no agenda. Mm -hmm. Is that literally the type of messaging you would use to call out the fact that, hey, I failed in this way. And this is actually what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to stay in touch. And I want to reassure you that there's no actual agenda here. Would you recommend having all three of those elements? Yeah, I would say the first thing that I would do when I reach out to people, and I, I give these drills and like, when I talk about networking and stuff, I won't bore you guys or, or, you know, shamelessly plug my stuff here. But when I do this, I typically reach out and I'll say, hey, Jay, Jordan Harbinger here. Because if you say like, hey, man, then it's like, oh, mass text from an unknown number or from a guy I haven't heard from in five years, delete. So I use your name and I say, it's been a while since we met at Cafe Gratitude in San Diego after FinCon 2017, you know? And then you go, oh, right, that guy. I remember him. We never did keep in touch. And I might even say we never really kept in touch because I neglected to save your number, wanted to see what you were up to, can't remember what reminded me of you. Or you say, hey, I just talked to the other guy that was at the table and I, th I asked him about your name and I searched in my phone and here you are, wanted to reach back out. You're still going to be suspicious, 
but I'm just going to say, Hey, the reason I thought of you is this, here's my name. Here's where we met. And I remember your name. You won't ever get rid of people being suspicious a little bit, which is fine. It doesn't really matter. We don't really need you to be totally unsuspicious. What I want to do is just get a reply because then I can say, what are you up to? Oh, I'm just getting snowed in over here in Ohio. Oh, great. What else? You know, what are you up to these days? Well, I'm doing this podcast and it's kind of interesting. And I know you do podcasting. Yeah, that's right. That's right. You're doing that. Oh, let me look it up. Cool. And now we're in a real conversation and it's only going to be a few texts back and forth. But the idea is to kick the rust off of these weak and dormant network ties. It's not to like, I'm not going to fly out there and hang out for a week or like we're not planning lunches all the time. It's just to shake the rust off. And that's, you see these people who come up with excuses, right? They go, I don't have time to do seven coffees a week. And I'm like, did I ask you to do any coffees a week? No, I asked you to send three texts. Don't pretend that you have to get engaged to every single person that you chat with via text. It's just a, it's one of these sort of excuse processes. But we use scripts like that because you want something that is going to signal that I remember you. Here's where you can remember me. And if you don't remember me, I want to give you enough information so that you can kind of fake it. <laughs> because what you don't want is new phone who dis. Or if you're like me, I just go, I don't know who this person is. I don't know. This is an unknown number. They're asking me for something. They didn't use my name. I'm just going to ignore it. And then if I, if I see that person in a week or a month or a year and they go, hey, I texted you and you didn't reply, I can just go, never saw it, right? Who are you, you going to prove that I did? No, of course not. Turn your red receipts off. So I can, I can just ignore that. But what we want is to make it so that people don't have to and don't need to, right? You go, oh, right, yeah, Cafe Gratitude 2017. And then you're thinking to yourself, was I with David? Oh, right. I bet you were the guy who's sitting there with David. And even if you say, I can't remember you, I'm sorry. I go, it was you, me, David. And I remember John ordered 17 different weird Google, uh, green drinks. And you, and you go, okay, that's the guy whose name I just never remembered. You know, that's fine. All I want to do is compel a response. Because if I'm doing this, I call this drill connect four, because I do it with four people five days a week. If you're re-engaging 80 people a month, that is a lot of people, right? And even if only half respond, now you're re-engaging 40 people a month who now know who you are. You kind of know what they're up to if you got that far in your conversation via text. And more importantly, you know how to deliver a little bit of value to them. Like if I know that you're doing a podcast and you just started off and it's about generating leads for your law firm, I can go, you know what? I've been doing a podcast for 14 years. Let me know if you ever have any quick questions. Just shoot me a text. Now I'm of value in your network. Or you might say, yeah, I'm building a website. And I go, let me know if you need a graphic designer. I got a really good web graphics guy. I'm happy to introduce you. Now I don't have to do anything, right? Other than an email introduction. I'm not making your website for you. I'm just figuring out where you plug in to the other people that I know in my network. So I can re-engage you, possibly offer value to you in some way. That's how you re-engage weak and dormant network ties and make sure that you're building strong relationships without spending all day working for free for random strangers that you met three years ago at some cafe. So smart because these little offers that you're talking about of, hey, if, you, if I can ever be of help, like just shoot me a couple questions. Mm -hmm. You are giving in that moment and making a really great impression and genuinely would do that if they respond, but so often people won't, but they'll they remember won't. that you asked or offered. Yeah. Or they'll say something like, yeah, right now I'm just wondering about this podcast host or that podcast host. And you say, hey, you know what? I've heard bad things about this one. 
I would go with this other third option that you didn't mention. Let me introduce you to the guys who run it. And then you introduce them to the sales guys, you know, the onboarding team at whatever. And they're like, oh, I'm so glad that I got this. And the onboarding team at that company is like, thanks for throwing a lead to us that we just closed. That's awesome. You're an awesome guy. So now I've built value with you and I've built value with the hosting company or, or the graphic designer or the attorney or whoever I referred. And so it's win-win all around forever. It's actually win-win-win because now you guys are like, that Jordan guy, really nice guy, made an intro. and it works out well in my favor. I'm making introductions all the time. And all I'm doing is sending a couple of emails, right? Do you want the intro? Do you want the intro? It's called the double opt-in, right? I ask you if you want the intro. I ask them if they're comfortable with the intro. And then I make the intro of both sides say yes. So now, you know, years might go by and you go, I'm still using that web host. They are the best. I'm so glad I didn't do the other one that I was thinking of that I heard went out of business. And now people can't get their RSS feeds, you know, for their podcast, whatever. It makes me look good and it builds referral currency. It builds social capital. So when I need something in the future, whatever that might be, if it ever even happens, I can say, hey, you know, I'm doing a book launch. And you go, well, I'm happy to help. You introduced me to my web designer and then you got me a lawyer and then you helped me find a, a host for my podcast. So yeah, you, you just want me to share this on social? That's it? You sure? You know, happy to do that. That's the least I can do. You want that times a thousand. Introductions are such high leverage things because not only are you having that immediate feeling and, and build of social capital of like, man, I can't believe Jordan did that for me. That's awesome. But those two people, when they talk, they're going to look for common ground. And the most obvious common ground is the person who connected them. Yeah. So how do you know Jordan? <laughs> oh, well, actually he introduced me to this and then that got me started with that. And then actually come to think of it, that Jordan guy has been pretty nice for the last few years, right? Oh yeah. Well, I just met him. So now you have a, per a good impression of me that was first after, well, maybe not first, but you know, hasn't been active for three years. Now you're talking to somebody else who likes me because I've helped him out with a few things. And then all I have to do is send you a text every six months or so to make sure you don't forget that I exist. Okay, great. And then it gives me every opportunity, every interaction with you gives me another opportunity to help you with something, right? Potentially. Or to, or to say, Hey, I, I know you live in Ohio and you do podcasts. There's this other person that has a question about podcasting in Ohio and, you know, internet, being affected by the snow or whatever sort of like random thing. Would you mind telling him about this? He wants to learn how to organize his bookshelf by color as well, which I see you did back there. Um, you're the expert in that area. So it's just little things like this that take virtually no time. People go, yeah, you know, thousands of people. I don't have, I got a job. I don't have time to network. I guarantee you that I spend like an hour a week on this. It doesn't take any time at all to send the texts. It takes minutes a day. The intros I make each week are a couple of minutes each, right? And then reaching out to other people for various other things and helping people with things. I mean, it's maybe not even an hour a week and I have thousands of people in my network that I can talk to at all times. So I don't care if you have a kid and a job, like this is such an easy, high leverage thing. I know people that do this when they're, instead of scrolling through Instagram for another six minutes a day, they just send an introduction or they re-engage a couple of people. And they're doing that instead of like hitting like on cat photos or some crap like that. So it really is such a high leverage activity. Most people just don't do it because they don't have systems, not because they don't have time. When we come back, Jordan and I talk about what we can do if we haven't dug that well yet, but we're thirsty today. And a little later, I shamelessly asked Jordan how I can become a better interviewer. So stick around and we'll be right back. Welcome back to Creative Elements. One of the principles that Jordan shared with us a little bit ago was to dig the well before you're thirsty. 
It's a really great tip and a great way to live. But if you're just thinking about this for the first time, chances are you may not have been digging that well and you may already be thirsty. So I asked Jordan if there are ways to quickly dig that well, or if we should not even attempt to ask for help if we haven't been cultivating relationships for months or years already. I mean, you can make asks, but you have to realize that a lot of people are going to be like, eh, I don't really know you. And, you know, I haven't talked to you in years. So you're going to, you're going to come up pretty dry. I would say, go ahead. If you, you know, if you're desperate right now and you just lost your job or something, you got to do what you got to do. But one thing I recommend for people who aren't necessarily in that situation, this is a drill that I call layoff lifeline. So imagine that you did get laid off or your business imploded or whatever and that happened today. Who would you reach out to for advice or counsel, right? So would you reach out to your parents? Okay, fine. That's an easy one. Maybe don't count them. But would you reach out to your old boss? What about your wife's old boss that you got along with really well? What about that neighbor you had who was a business owner who was relatively successful? What about your career counselor? What about, you know, your old boss from this other thing? Those are, those are the types of people that go on this list. So make that list, then reach out now while you don't have an agenda and you don't reek of desperation and re-engage those folks. And you can say something like, hey, I know I haven't been in touch for a really long time, but I wanted to change that. So I wanted to reach out to you because somebody asked me, who would I call if I got laid off? And you were the first person that came to mind. And I realized I haven't talked to you for six years and don't worry, I still have a job, but I wanted to check in and see how you were doing. Most of those people are going to be beyond stoked to hear from you. Like, Hey, I wondered where you landed after such and such corporation. You're doing your own thing now. I'm proud of you. I always knew you were a sharp guy. You know, you go back and forth with these folks. Then in six, eight months, 12 months, if you do lose your job, God forbid, or you do have a problem, you can reach out to them and they're not going to ignore you or go, "Ugh, you're just here for a job, right? They know that that was something that you didn't plan and you've dug the well before you got thirsty. So make that list of those people now. It's not going to substitute all of your outreach. You should still be doing Connect Four and I'll teach you that drill in a minute, but definitely start with this because a lot of people will go, I don't really have any contacts I don't really have people that I can reach out to for this and that and the other thing. You do, you're just not thinking about it. Because if I say, who do you know that's a good network connection? All you're going to think about are things that you need right now. You're going to go, hmm, no one, because I don't need anything. Or, oh, I don't know. I mean, I really need a lawyer for this real estate thing, but I don't know any real estate lawyers. Those You're going to be thinking very narrowly. But if you're just thinking about who you trust and who you wish you had kept in touch with, that's a wide range, a broad range of people in various industries that probably don't even have anything in common. Love that. So it's, it's so rare for people to go first, too. If you're that person doing that reach out saying like, hey, I want to reconnect with you. It makes such an impression because people just don't do that. What I'm doing, though, instead of using a CRM or making a list, all I do is I go on my phone, I open the text messaging app, and I scroll all the way to the bottom. That's where those threads are, where it's like, see you guys at one, Cafe Gratitude, and you're like, who are these people? There's three people whose names are saved. Okay, I haven't talked to them in a while. There's an unknown number in there. Who the hell is that? Right? I, I'm reengaging those numbers because those are those dead threads, those weak and dormant ties, but they're in my phone. So I either met them or something like that. And you can skip your exes. You can skip, you know, the guy who ended up robbed, stealing the beer out of your garage or something that you, you know, you had the number in there. You can skip those people, right? But don't look around in there and go, who's important? 
just re-engage everyone that's in there that's not a totally despicable person. And you never know where the opportunities are going to come from. I'll re-engage somebody in there who was like the real example. I'll re-engage the guy who like installed the water filter in my kitchen, you know, the reverse osmosis. And I'll go, hey, Gage, I just wanted to check in and see how you're doing. You know, I, I know how you are with texts. I'll, I'll assume I'll hear from you in 30 days. And then like four <laughs> days go by and he goes, ah, I'm early. You're right. You still know how bad of a texter I am. Well, it turns out my business is doing great. And I wish I could hire someone because I'm so busy. And I go, do you mean it? Because I know some kids who are trustworthy. They just graduated from school and they would probably love to help you install water filters while they're paying off their student loans because, you know, they got, they got bills to pay and the market ain't what it, <laughs> it used to be. And this guy's like, sure, I'd love to meet them. You know, call them right away. I've got more projects than I can handle. So I just get a kid who knows how to, you know, who worked at a machine shop as an intern and has mechanic skills, couldn't get a job as a mechanic. And he's installing water filters now because I friggin' texted the guy who installed my reverse osmosis water filter in my kitchen to say hello. So I ended up giving someone a job. That guy, when he comes and replaces our filters, I never get charged, ever. I haven't paid in in two years for a replacement filter because I got him one of his first employees and it made his life a million times easier. And that kid, he's got a mechanic job now. He doesn't still work with the water guy, but he's thankful forever. And I think if I ever have a, well, I have a Tesla, but if I had a mechanical, if I had a car uh, that ran on gas that he could fix, I guarantee you I could take it there and he would only charge me for parts. I promise you that. A lot of what you're talking about here is kind of like a natural result of human reciprocity. But mm -hmm. my gut tells me, while you know that exists, you're probably not expecting it or can't really totally expect it. So when, you, when you're employing some of these techniques, how do you think about expectations in the way that you treat people? You've heard ABC always be closing, right? You ever see that movie, Glenn Gary, oh, yeah. Glenn, ABC always be closing. This is more like ABG, always be giving or always be generous. And what that means is, yeah, I'm not, I'm not putting myself out in order to give to people, you know, I don't like not take my kids to Universal Studios because I've got to make someone a website over the weekend. I don't do that, but I'm still referring people around and I'm building social capital that way. But I'm not expecting anything in return and I'm not attached to anything in return. You know, if I got you a job with my water filter guy and then you got a job at an auto body shop finally, and that's what you wanted to do. And I drove my car in there and I said, hey man, I'm the guy that got you that water filter job. And he goes, yeah, cool, man. And he puts the new parts in my car and he does a good job. I'm not going to go, what, you want me to pay you now? You little jerk. You know, I'm just going to do what I would normally do. I'm not going to be offended by that. I'm not going to make a mental note to never help that kid again. You know, that's, that's poisoning the well. People do that. They keep score. And it's ridiculous because it only hurts you. It doesn't really hurt them. And if it does hurt them, they'll never know. Like that guy's not going to go, oh man, Jordan's mad at me for this really petty reason. And now when I need a new job, I can never go to him. There's a consequence for my actions. That's not going to happen. What happens is now I'm sort of low key pissed off at this kid for not giving me what I think I deserve, which is not really up to me to decide. You know, that's, that's problematic. And you don't really think about it in terms of business or in, in an everyday context, but let me put it into a dating context. And that's where it really gets obvious. Okay. So I drive Angela to the airport, right? And she's like, thanks, Jordan. And then next month or two months from now, I drive Angela to the airport. So she doesn't have to pay for parking. Thanks, Jordan. And then, you know, three months later, I drive Angela to the airport and she's like, you know, this is so cool. I really appreciate this. You're so, you're so helpful. And then 
One day I go, I have too much whiskey and I say, Angela, I love you. And she goes, Hey, you're, I love you like a brother, but you know, like we're just friends. I don't know. Are you okay? You sound like you had too much to drink, Jordan. Are you okay? And I go, you know what? Angela sucks. She doesn't want to be my girlfriend. I'm never driving her to the airport again. I'm going to not answer her calls. I'm going to not answer her texts. Now, do I look like a freaking creep at that point or what? Right. And Angela's like, I thought we were friends, but he's ghosting me now. He called me drunk this one time. He's a freaking weirdo. I'll just get another ride to the airport. I don't need this garbage. That is what you are doing when you help someone with something and then they don't do what you want and you act like that, right? You're doing that. You're, dr you're drunk dialing Angela. That's what you're doing. <laughs> and even if you don't do it in public, a public way, kind of like that, right? You being pissed off secretly about something that you think you've earned that the other person has no idea you're upset about, or you act out, which is even worse, it makes you look crazy and it poisons your relationship. You're the one that's upset. They don't really care. They might be bummed that you're upset, but the whole time you've been stewing over this, they've literally never even thought about you. So you're making problems for yourself when you're attached to getting something in return. So when you are in a position, you know, you're hosting your own podcast. Now you've been, you've been podcasting for 12 years and it's one of the biggest shows on the planet and you talk to incredible guests. I assume some of them are introductions. How often are you now going and saying, hey, can you introduce me to this person? Is that because you've dug the well or are people coming to you saying you got to talk to this person? They're just bringing them to you. Yeah, most people are saying like, hey, you've got to talk to this person at the level where I'm at now. It's usually a publicist. You know, I don't go, hey, Matthew McConaughey, can you introduce me to Jason Bateman? He's like, dude, why are you <laughs> why are you emailing me? Um, you know, I get a publicist that says, hey, thanks for not. I mean, they don't say this in so many words, but they're basically saying, hey, thanks for not blowing it and making me look like an idiot in front of my client, I've got another client. What do you think? You know, so it's, it's more of that, but there's a lot of, there's a lot of that, you know, I'll have a CIA agent on and they'll say something like, Hey, you know, I have another friend who works for the NSA. It's a little bit different and they're doing this different thing, but she also has a book coming out. I think it's interesting. You might be interested. And then I go, all right, cool. So I do get intros like that, but I don't really get I don't really say like, now that I've had you on my podcast, who else should I have on my podcast? Because I think that works, that worked for me for years and years and years. But now I've got people who have teams and the teams, they don't, oh, thanks for having our other client on. What do you want a cookie, Jordan? Get out of my inbox. You know, that's kind of where some of that is, especially with the Hollywood types. It's just like the power dynamic is skewed heavily towards the guest and the talent. Now, when it comes to business shows and business guests, that's a little bit different, right? Because they can't just call whatever show they want and get on. So it, it depends largely on the personality that's coming in. So for the Jordan Harbinger show, it's sort of hit or miss. You know, I'm dealing with the publicist at the publisher. That's an easy relationship. Somebody's known me for years, has a bunch of clients, fills up my slots where they can. But when it comes to some of these like really, really hard to get people, it's a, it's a lot of relationships. And there's some horse trading that's sort of beyond the scope of this interview where it's like, okay, if you want Matthew McConaughey, you better have this other person on and they don't say it explicitly, but you kind of know, right? You kind of know what's up and you have that person on and then they give you the, the big fish. I don't like to do that because my first responsibility is to the audience. So I do sacrifice the ability. If you were wondering why some shows get a ton of celebrity guests on and also have like dudes that sell tires on, that's why. Right. Mm. In order to get Kevin Hart, you had to have the tire sales guy on there. And meanwhile, my responsibility is to the audience. I'm not going to waste your time 
with the Jordan Harbinger show, listening to a tire sales guy that I know is a snore just so I can get a f- Instagram photo next to a celebrity. So I forego some of that celebrity stuff. So talk to me then about how all of this, everything you've learned about building relationships and, and creating rapport with people quickly. When you interview guests, and especially big name guests who are in probably really tight time slots, you've got to build that rapport quickly to, to have a really productive, mm-hmm. good conversation. What have you learned about hosting and interviewing that maybe I can learn from? Mm. First things first, and this goes to my point from before, your job as a host is to bring value for the audience. Your job is not actually to become friends with the guest. And that's a huge, important distinction because what I've noticed is with all the sort of pseudo journalism that's going on in podcasting, what I've noticed is a lot of people who wanna be influencers or are influencers, which is a word I think is kind of barf, those people are almost exclusively trying to become friends with the guests that they have on the show so that they can upgrade their personal cachet right? They want to stand next to somebody who's got a lot of followers, who's sort of famous. It makes them look good by association. I don't do a whole lot of that because it causes you to make bad decisions. You know, Matthew McConaughey is going to be here for an hour or an hour and a half. My audience ideally is going to be here for 10 years, 20 years, longer. Who knows? I've been 14 years. There's people who've been listening since day one, right? To the Jordan Harbinger show. You have to be really careful Because if you abuse people's trust once in 14 years, they're probably still going to stick around. If you do it 10 times a year where you have a stinker, they start to realize that you don't actually value their time. You're just trying to become buddy-buddy with Malcolm Gladwell or Charles Koch or somebody, and you're, you're asking them softball questions. You're afraid to sort of rock the boat because you want them to like you. You're gonna get a crummier interview, man. You know, the reason that I'm able to do good interviews that people respect is because I will say something like, okay, well, when you do this and this and this, you know what that looks like, right? Whereas another host would never dream of saying anything like that to a billionaire because then they go, I'm never going to be able to interview this person again. And all of his billionaire buddies are going to say that I challenged him and they're going to be more cautious. I want that. And what this does actually is since people know what to expect from me, they actually like it more because it seems more genuine. So if I challenge somebody on something, they knew that was going to happen. I'm not making them look bad. I'm just being really authentic in order to get the best interview for my audience. So they know that the audience is better. They know that the questions are better and the audience goes out and buys the book or is more interested in that person. So rather than trying to build a cult of personality or trying to get the guest to like you, make sure that your first priority is actually to your audience. And that way you will grow faster, which is really what the guest cares about anyway. They just want to see the numbers. They're not really that worried about whether or not, you know, you're going to want to have coffee with them after the show. They don't want that. You know, they really don't. Sometimes you will make friends with your guests. Let's be honest. If that's the point of your podcast, it's kind of pathetic. What does your preparation look like? You put out multiple episodes a week with people who have such long careers. You could spend days just learning about one person. So how do you prepare uh, in depth to be able to have these conversations that you do? Yeah, I do put a lot of work into it. So I will read the whole book, which most, that right there puts you in the 99th percentile. I didn't realize this, but when I talk to other journalists and when I talk to the people that I talk to on the show, I'll say, yeah, I read the whole book. And and they'll be like, what? It's 400 pages long. Yeah, well, I read the whole thing. And they'll a lot of people go, uh-huh. Yeah, sure you did, buddy. Right? Like they're, they're thinking that. And then as you ask questions that show that you read the whole book, 
you start to slowly see these people be like, okay, respect. And they stop, they quit their BS. If they're putting, trying to pull the wool, but you've read the whole book and you know their content really well, they haven't looked at it in eight months, right? But you looked at it in the last eight days, you have a much better conversation. So I'm spending 10, 20 plus hours preparing for each guest. I read the book, I read their Wikipedia. I listen to other interviews the person's been in. I look at news articles, things like that. If they have two books, maybe I'll read both if they're sort of related to one another. That's the kind of thing that not only helps you build a relationship with your audience, but it also helps you build a relationship with the guest. Nothing really says I respect you quite like you having devoured a bunch of their work, thought about it, made a bunch of notes and talk with them about it. You can, you can brown nose all you want, right? But if you want them to be a fan of you, the way to do that is to consume their work. I don't really care if someone's complimentary, especially if they haven't read my work or listened to my show. My, my favorite fake sort of rapport builder is people go, I'm a huge fan of the Jordan Harbinger show. I'm so glad to have you on. And then I'll say something like, well, in this, in this, this episode, and then this course, and they've like never heard of six minute networking, which I talk about in every single episode of the Jordan Harbinger show twice. It's my free networking course with the drills that we just talked about. And I'm like, oh, I get it. You lied. Or someone will say, huge fan of the show. I just want to ask you if you can do this one quick favor or put this other person on your show. I'll go, what, what episodes are your favorite? And then it's either the one that came out that day that's like first on my website because they realized they had to look really quick at their phone or they'll go, the, the, all of them. And I'm like, okay, yeah, not true. <laughs> Name one episode that I've had. You literally can't even do it. You lion sack, you know? So the, the prep is hugely important. That's what generates the rapport. It does a lot of the heavy lifting. And frankly, it just reading the book, spending like even a few hours prepping a guest, you're already in the 99th percentile. Of, ter- of the people in terms of the people that have interviewed them before, including journalists, including, prof- including, and especially professional journalists. I know a lot of journalists, they're grossly overworked and underpaid most of the time. So if they interview somebody for their show or their little segment or their article, it's a 15 minute phone call. They did not read the book. They, I know journalists that have said things like, I can't believe I have to interview the prime minister of Israel. I'm on the way there in the back of an Uber this is my prep time. You know, they're like Googling things on their phone. And, and that's, not, that's not ideal. As a podcaster, we usually don't have to do that. So I, I just find it interesting that the one advantage we have as podcasters is we have tons of time to prepare, tons of advance notice, and almost no one bothers to do it. I truly, truly love this conversation because there is no more powerful force in my life than relationships. Everything we do, everything we aspire to, can be attained through building genuine relationships. I also really appreciated Jordan sharing some inside baseball with me about being a podcast host at the level that he's at. He's been hosting for more than a decade at this point, so I can learn a ton from him, and I hope that I can continue to do so. If you like this episode, you'd probably enjoy the Jordan Harbinger Show, which is on this very podcast player that you're using right now. And if you want to check out Jordan's six-minute networking course, you can do that for free at jordanharbinger.com. Thanks for Jordan for being on the show. Thank you to Emily Klaus for making the artwork for this episode. Thanks to Nathan Todd Hunter for mixing the show and to Brian Skeel for creating our music. If you like this episode, you can tweet at jklaus and let me know. And if you really want to say thank you, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you next week.
the Podglomerate, a Sonic Universe.